Greetings and welcome to White's Run Baptist Church. Uh, blessed Palm Sunday to you, and I pray that everything finds you well. Today we're going to be taking a close look at the death of Jesus Christ, and we're going to see that it is indeed a phenomenal scene. We're going to take our message from Luke chapter 23, so turn there in Luke chapter 23. I'll remind you that notes can be found online that are hyperlinked to the scriptures, so you can check the scriptures to see if what I'm saying is true. Uh, join me there in Luke 23, and we're going to look at uh, something very interesting, the, the truly unique death of Jesus Christ. And we always like to cover the crucifixion before coming into Easter to celebrate the resurrection, for it is the crucifixion that is truly the central point of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look at the fact that it's very unique in several ways. We're going to look at some of the details that make it unique, and we're going to talk about ultimately what is the main reason it is such a unique event in world history. Jesus did not come into the world like anyone else. Having been conceived of the Holy Spirit, um, he didn't live his life like anyone else. He lived it in perfect devotion to the Father, never having sinned. He didn't teach like anyone else is ever taught, and he didn't influence people in the world as much as anyone else. Or he did it much more than anyone else. So he was so different and so unique in so many ways, but it also pertains to his death, that Jesus didn't die like anyone else has ever died. And we're going to learn this. We're going to learn that the death of Jesus was unique in many ways, but none so profound as its purpose, and that was to save sinners. So let's go to Luke chapter 23, look at verses 44 to 49. Here's what it says there. It was now about the sixth hour. Now it's about noon. And it says, And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Well, let's open appropriately with a word of prayer. Father God, it's our delight today to meet you in your word. It is our great privilege to read the account of the death of our Savior. And Lord, I pray this day that you'll give us understanding of these things that, Lord, indeed, we may believe and that our belief may have its proper result in bearing fruit to your glory. Lord, I pray this day you'll lend us understanding, send your Spirit to strengthen us as we come and confront this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there we have a, a powerful scene, and it's described with great restraint in the gospel narratives. They don't spend a lot of time detailing the brutality of the crucifixion and things like that. That has been mostly left up to us to discover from history, from other research. 
But I think it was deliberately so. I think the emphasis that God wanted as he inspired the gospel writers was to be upon the, the manner of his death, not the necessarily the, the physical nature of it, but the other events that surrounded it. And of course, the purpose of his death being kind of the central issue of the New Testament. His death was so unusual that it's recorded by all four Gospels without using the word died. This is very interesting because uh, that would be the most plain way to say this, but what I want to show you is this. I want to show you that in Matthew, he says that he yielded up his spirit. And in Mark, it says he breathed his last, as it says here in Luke that we just saw, he breathed his last. And in John 19, it says that he gave up his spirit, or if you like the King James, he gave up the ghost. And so this is profoundly important. We see the, the common word for died is not used here, but it's used in countless other places to speak about what he did. Some people will look at these gospel accounts and say, well, that means Jesus didn't really die. Well, no, he really did die. It was very plainly stated, like I said, in dozens of places in the gospels and elsewhere in the New Testament that he did plainly die. But when it comes right down to the scene, his death was so unique that that word wasn't used that they wanted to make a different point. They wanted to say, and they wanted to, as we'll point out here shortly, they wanted to show the deliberateness of his death. But first, let's look at three very significant events that happened here along with this. We'll see that three significant events happened. There was darkness, there was the tearing of the curtain in the temple, and there was Jesus crying out with a loud voice. And we'll take these three in order as we go through here. First of all, this darkness. If we look at verse 44, we see it was about the sixth hour of the day. And the hour reckoning that Luke is using here uh, usually goes more or less from sunup. So it would be about 6 a.m. Uh, plus the sixth hour, that would bring us to about noon. So it's the middle of the day, and yet there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So three hours of darkness over the land during this time. And this is uh, incredibly profound because darkness in the Bible so clearly represents bad things, evil in general, and the light, of course, representing good things. And the uh, darkness would represent the absence of God or the godless world without Christ. It's called darkness. And the people in that darkness are called blind. But Christ, on the other hand, is introduced to us as the light, the light that has come into the darkness but hasn't been overcome by the darkness. And so those three hours of darkness seems to be showing us something very interesting here, that this is a serious scene, that there is something real and significant going on here. And what we want to do is we want to explore that a little bit. Jesus is the one by whom and for whom all things were made, and by whom all things hold together. And the very first statement of the creation account in the book of Genesis is that, is let there be light. And so the beginning was light, and sin came into the world bringing, as it were, darkness. Now, there's a brokenness to our creation that is very obvious to those who believe, but it's not obvious to those 
who are perishing. Indeed, though, they'll sometimes, the, the perishing, the unbelievers, will sometimes use the brokenness of this world to accuse God. They'll say, God's so good, why is there death? Or why is there suffering? Or why are there bad things happening if God is so great? But they don't realize in their own foolishness that the woes of this world are God's kindness to show us that something is not right. That's why the penalty for sin that he originally made was death. And once that sin occurred and death came into the world through Adam's sin, in Genesis chapter 3, we find God cursing the world in various ways. Why? Because he wanted it to be obvious that this was not the right order of things. And our consciences bear witness to this, that we look at these things and we see that something is wrong. We will never be accustomed to death. It will always be an intruder. It will always be a bad, a wrong, because it doesn't belong here. We were not originally made for it. And interestingly, even all of creation groans. If we look in the book of Romans in chapter 8, we find that all creation groans in the pains of childbirth. It's eagerly longing for the revealing of the sons of God. This darkness, therefore, is like a great groan happening. It's like a great ripple in the creation at the single greatest milestone in God's redemptive plan. It's like the lights on an electrical system that dim momentarily when something tremendously powerful starts up in the same grid. This was an incredible darkness, and it was a miraculous darkness. This was not an eclipse. You notice it lasted for three hours. Eclipses never last that long in their full darkness. And not only that, but we know when this happened. This happened on the Passover, and the Passover is always close to the full moon. And so an eclipse only happens on a new moon, and so it would be impossible for this to be a solar eclipse, a natural phenomenon. This is something God has broken in and done something what we would call supernatural and departs from the regular pattern of this world to make a point. Now, one of the points is the Passover itself. There may be a clear connection here because as we account the Passover, the Passover was first uh, ordered in Exodus chapter 12 and in that, God had sent the plagues on Egypt in order to bring out the people of Israel. And he sent 10 of these. And the ninth one was three days of darkness, a darkness so heavy that it says it could be felt. And this darkness was so profound that nobody dared move from anywhere. But it's interesting that the people of Israel had light where they were. And so this darkness was confined to the people of Egypt, who indeed represent in that whole thing. Now, it's not a symbolic account. It's all quite true. It's all historical narrative. But it parallels the salvation account in that the people of Egypt were the world. They were the, the sinful world, and the Israelites were being redeemed out of it or saved out of it. It's a parallel to uh, salvation of individuals. But this darkness was the last one that came right before the Passover. 
And of course, we know that Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the Passover lamb. He was sacrificed on the Passover, which is amazing because the Jewish leaders even made efforts to not have him arrested and and crucified on the Passover. But nevertheless, that's how it ended up going down because that was God's desire. That was his plan. Jesus was the Passover lamb of God that the book of Hebrews makes crystal clear is the fact. Now there's one more obvious meaning of this darkness, and it's that Jesus was bearing the wrath of God. And the process is described in 2 Corinthians 5.21 this way. It says, uh, for our sake, he made him sin, that is the Father made the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the great exchange that takes place here. Jesus took upon our sins, and it says here in such a way, becoming sin himself, and then describes us as bringing on him giving us the righteousness of God. Now, this is interesting because it's clear from the Old Testament that God does not want to view sin. He does not want to look upon sin because he indeed is holy and he is perfect. And if he looks upon sin, if he has fellowship with sin, then he's approving of sin, which would go against his very own character and go against what is best for his creation, for us. Look what it says in Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk describes God this way. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And theologians sometimes make a big deal, you know, that the Bible lists a few things that God cannot do. And this is one of them. He cannot look at wrong. This seems to be supported by Jesus calling out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this word forsaken, this is a strong word. Now, he, of course, is bringing us to Psalm 22. He's quoting the first line of it by saying that. But that psalm has a great deal about forsakenness, about being uh, socially and emotionally separated from God and being surrounded by enemies and, and given over even to death in the midst of enemies, a seeming loss, but yet indeed a, actually a true victory. So the darkness in the scene can be many things, but it's very clear that this message is meant to show us the seriousness of what's happening here. It's to tell us that what is happening here on the cross and this crucifixion of Jesus, this is rocking the cosmos. This is a once in eternity kind of serious occurrence. The death of Christ himself is not routine. It's not accidental as is demonstrated by this darkness, and it is not merely symbolic. The darkness shows us that this is none other than the wrath of God. God speaks about judgment in the book of Amos. In Amos chapter 8, he speaks of the judgment that's coming upon the nation Israel. And when the Old Testament says, on that day, it's generally speaking of the days of Jesus, whether it's his first coming or second coming in judgment. 
it mixes them together, his first and second coming, and it calls it that day or the day of the Lord. And look what it says here. It says, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. You know, this is a scene of great sorrow, of great lament. And we see the crowds walking away from the scene of Jesus' crucifixion, beating their breasts, a, a clear sign, a symbolic way of just expressing great anguish at what has happened. And look what it says at the end of verse 10 here. It says, I will make it like the morning for an only son at the end of it, like a bitter day. What a bitter day as the only begotten son of God is crucified. This darkness comes on the world as God shows us the intensity of what is happening. Well, the next significant thing that happens here is the curtain. In verse 45, it says, and the, cur and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. In one of the other gospel accounts, I think it's Matthew, uh, says that it's not just torn in two, it's torn in two from top to bottom. In other words, it was rent from the top to the bottom. And when you analyze what the temple was like, that would be an impossibility for a human being. It was, it was too high. It was too thick. It was too great a structure simply for a human being to be able to tear it from top to bottom. And so this is another supernatural occurrence. And the curtain or the veil is referring to the thick veil in the temple that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And what this is clearly showing us is that the death of Jesus has given us access into the holy place, that is, has given us access to God himself. The book of Hebrews has in chapters 8 through 10 an extended comparison of Jesus and the high priest, showing how Jesus was the great and final high priest. He did that kind of work, but he did it in the heavenly places. He accomplished, therefore, an eternal solution to sin for the believer, not just a temporary covering of sin like, Jesus, or like the Lord refers to the Old Testament sacrifices, but a permanent solution, a total and forever atonement for sin. He tells us that the uh, earthly temple and the priesthood were temporary establishments designed to foreshadow what Jesus would do permanently in the heavenly places. In the temple, the high priest went in there um, into the Holy of Holies only once per year to offer sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. Now they had daily sacrifices they had to do and other feasts and, and things in which they'd offer sacrifices they were required to do. But this one, this day of atonement, one of their high feast days, was special. This was the only time anyone went into the Holy of Holies, and they had to do it in a particular way. They had to be sanctified. There had to be a special sacrifice just for the priest to go in. He had to be sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice, and any utensils that he took in there to carry the coals of the offering, those had to be also cleansed in this way. And the book of Hebrews 
says we are like those utensils. We have been sprinkled with the blood. We are okay to go into the presence of God now. In Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19, here's what it says about these things. It says, therefore, brothers, and it's speaking of because of the work Jesus did as our great high priest, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The sacrifices of the Jewish system that God set up to teach us about Jesus, he says that those are only good for an external kind of washing or just a covering over of sin. But notice the wording here in the book of Hebrews. It's about the heart. It's about the conscience. It's about cleaning and changing the inner man. This is the distinction of Christianity from all the other religions of the world who suggest that by acting externally, by doing particular things and rituals and things like that, we can come into alignment with God and his purposes. But Christianity says, no, that's impossible for us to do. It is something too high. We are already tainted with sin. We cannot overcome that except by a eternal and perfect sacrifice. And once that sacrifice is made, then the human being is changed from the inside out. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. It's powerfully important that, that salvation is described as us having our heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh. This is an inside out kind of religion. So this teaches that his death cleared the way to God for those who believe. So as, as we saw earlier, the, the wrath of God is what came upon Jesus. And this was Jesus' sacrifice for sins. And as it was finished, the veil tore in two to show that the way was made to God. The way has been opened to God. And we're encouraged by the writer of the book of Hebrews to enter in confidently. Not confident in ourselves, but confident in the blood of of Jesus Christ. And the tearing of the veil also shows us very clearly that the temple system was now obsolete. Well, there's one more interesting occurrence here we want to take a look at, and that's that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. If we look at verse 46 here, it said, Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, that might not seem profound. He calls out with a loud voice. But when you understand how crucifixion worked, it's very profound that he calls out with a loud voice and then immediately breathed his last. And this is how all the gospel accounts account this, that he cried out with a loud voice and then died and immediately died. See, crucifixion was slow and agonizing, and crucifixion was really a matter of suffocation. As one hung there with their arms out, uh, you know, and, and arms up and out, that it causes a compression of the chest cavity, 
which makes it difficult to breathe. And the way that someone being crucified gets a breath is by pushing with their legs, pushing themselves up, relieving some of the tension off the arms so that they can expand their chest cavity and get a breath. Now, at first, as someone is first crucified, they have the strength to do this. They can maybe even have enough strength to curse at their enemies, to scoff at people from the cross. We see there's a conversation takes place between Jesus and, and the two fellows that are, or at least one of the fellows that's being crucified with him. And they were shouting things at him early on. But as someone's energy fades, as they bleed out slowly upon the cross. And as they're exposed to the elements, um, they begin to weary and they eventually get too weak to say anything and eventually slip into unconsciousness due to a lack of oxygen because of the difficulty in breathing. It's likely that this crying out so late in the process of crucifixion, he's been hanging on the cross all day along with the other folks, this crying out was so unusual, probably startled the centurion and the others tending to this and the others standing around. In John uh, 1931, we see that this whole process that I've just described to you is true because in John 1931, uh, because it was a day of preparation, that is the day right before Passover, uh, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was one of their high days, a high holy day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. See, if somebody was lingering in crucifixion longer than they wanted them to, and they wanted to be merciful, what they would do in order to end the process quickly would be to break their legs so that they could no longer push themselves up to get a breath. When they come by to see to do this, they see that Jesus appears to be already dead. So one of the soldiers there checks him with a spear and pokes him with a spear and out comes blood and water. And Luke, being a physician, would know this, but we should know this too, that blood and water coming out of the chest cavity is a sure sign that someone is dead. And so he was already dead, so they didn't have to break his legs. And incidentally, this actually keeps what God was doing in putting the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Um, one of the rules of the Passover Lamb was that you could not break any of its bones. And so indeed, his bones weren't broken. In Psalm 22, the one that Jesus refers to as he uh, exclaims from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm twenty-two seventeen says, I can count all my bones as it describes his situation hanging on the cross by the inspiration of David some thousand years before Christ. So Jesus crying out with this loud voice shows us clearly that Jesus laid down his life deliberately, deliberately. In other words, he died willfully. He died on purpose. He died at the moment that he wanted to die. And the question is, well, how does this prove that his death was deliberate? Look, if he had enough strength to cry out, that means he wasn't particularly close to death from crucifixion. He had enough strength to live on for a while, and yet he died. He deliberately died. This is such an unusual sign that all four gospel writers 
included. So he deliberately died when the task was done. That, uh, but that shouldn't surprise us because of what he had said. Jesus said in his earthly ministry that it was the food, his food, to do the will of God. And indeed, in Isaiah 53.10, it makes it very clear that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That he has put him to grief. In this great passage, it teaches us about the crucifixion ahead of time, some 700 years before it happened. And even when Jesus was young, as he was found in the temple uh, by his parents, he had gone missing. They, they, they frantically looked around for him. Here he is, 12 years old. He's in the temple talking to the, the chief priests, having a theological conversation. And he's kind of surprised they didn't realize he'd be there because he said, I must be about my father's business. But most profoundly is this. Look what he says here in the book of John. In John chapter 10, verse 17, 18, Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd, being the great shepherd. This should draw our attention to Psalm 23, where it says, the Lord is my shepherd. So in, in all this, he's kind of claiming to be the Lord. But look what he says here. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. And so he's doing the will of his father. He's obediently obeying his father. He's laying down his life for the benefit of his people, his sheep as he calls them. Well, these are three very profound things that we see. We see this, uh, this great darkness come over the land. We see that there's this, this um, veil, you know, the curtain in the temple being torn in two. We see Jesus crying out with a loud voice. And now that we understand how unusual that is, and then just suddenly dying, we see indeed his, his death on the cross was deliberate. This was part of a plan of God. But I want to take just a moment. I want to look at three responses that we see, um, and actually four responses I want to talk about, uh, to what has happened here. First of all, the crowds. In Luke 23, 48, the crowds uh, say this. It, it says this about the crowds. All the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And like we said earlier, this is a sign of great concern, great anguish, great sorrow. Maybe even guilt is part of what they're talking about. Who were the crowds? Well, the crowds are the people who kind of gather around to see Jesus as a spectacle through the Gospels are called the crowds, the ones who are interested to see what's going to happen. They were the ones who did some of the shouting on Palm Sunday. Now the disciples were singing and things like that, but the crowds were there watching Jesus come in in a donkey to fulfill this scripture, claiming to be Messiah. And then at the end of that week, uh, when Jesus is being tried before Pilate, the crowds are the ones that the Jews agitate to the point to get them to shout, crucify him. And so the crowds are in this for the spectacle. The crowds are just the onlookers. But all of a sudden, these crowds are moved by what happened. These were people that were kind of the manipulated uh, masses of people. And now all of a sudden, 
they are sorrowful. They are impacted by this to the point of making these outward expressions of how they feel about this. The crowds indeed are, are profound in what they teach us. But then very importantly are the acquaintances of Jesus. It says in verse 49, all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So initially when Jesus was arrested, all the disciples scattered. Peter and John followed Jesus um, at a distance through some of the trials, but then we know that Peter departed at some point because of having been uh, having denied Jesus to servants of all people. And so he, uh, you know, he at some point stopped following, but it appears that maybe the disciples have come back. It says all his acquaintances, and that would be the many people that traveled with them, uh, including the many women that traveled with him. The women were first at the cross. They were first on the scene because, frankly, they, they had less to risk by doing that. It would be the men that were with Jesus that the authorities would see as a greater threat and would be perhaps looking for. But it would appear that as things drew on, they looked at least from a distance watching these things. And this is important because Luke started his gospel by addressing this Theophilus that he writes to saying, I've been careful to make an account. I've talked to the eyewitnesses and here are some of the eyewitnesses standing by. Now another eyewitness to this whole thing and one I have to think was a source for Luke and for others being so impacted by what he saw is the centurion. Let's take a look at, at the centurion here um, if we back up a verse, a couple verses, in verse 47, it says this, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And we see over in the account of Matthew and in the account of Mark, both have him saying, Truly this man was the Son of God. Now, is that a theological statement? Did he understand that this was the only begotten Son of God? No, probably not. Being a Roman, being a Gentile, he would have some concept of an idea of a Son of God. This would be a very righteous person or maybe somebody who is, you know, deity, uh, associated with deity. We don't know how much he understood, but he understood enough that it made such an impact on him that he praised God and he said, truly this was a son of God. These are Luke's witnesses. And this is Luke's emphasis. Because for this man to make this declaration, for this centurion to praise God, for this centurion to say, surely he was innocent, surely he was the son of God, is profound because he was not a Jew. He was not one of Jesus' disciples. He was not one who would understand really who Jesus was from a theological or biblical point of view. And yet what had happened was so profoundly impacting that it leads this man to make this exclamation. And generally we know that the people that were assigned to particular duties in the Roman uh, Roman way of doing things is people that did something as specific as crucifixion here in this city would not be on a rotational basis. These would not be, 
you know, just your, your random troops. Oh, bring those guys in today. They can do the crucifixions. No, these were the people that had to know how to do this. So this was routine for them. This was something this man saw day in and day out. And this day stood out to him. This day, he exclaimed, this one had to be innocent. Surely this was a son of God. Well, this brings us to the last uh, witnesses to this thing. The last response to this thing. And that last response is this. It's you. How do you respond to this? What do you make of this? See, Jesus died, and he died in a very unique way, but it's not the uniqueness of his death that that should be amazing to us. What should be amazing to us is the purpose of his death. I want to take you back momentarily to Isaiah chapter 53, because in Isaiah chapter 53, we find profound teaching about this that was given some 700 years before Jesus came. Take a look at this. Uh, it actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13, talking about a servant. God is speaking of a servant that will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, which by the way, lifted up in the Greek language, as this was eventually translated into Greek, is a euphemism for crucifixion. And he'll be uh, exalted, but he'll be the source of astonishment. His appearance so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The beatings that he took, the crown of thorns put upon his brow, the, the beatings he took upon his back, the, the punching that he took in the face. Elsewhere it suggests perhaps they pulled out his beard. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle, the same word used for how they would treat the utensils that had to go into the holy place that we talked about earlier. They would sprinkle them with the blood of the sacrifice. And this indeed is speaking of Jesus. This is the reason he came. Um, he said, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's in Isaiah we find out the arm of the Lord generally refers to Jesus Christ. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should de desire him. In other words, there was nothing particularly special about Jesus' appearance. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. You see what the problem of mankind is, is this. The problem of mankind is sin. The problem of mankind is this separation we have from God because of our sins. It uses two different words for sins here. And in fact, in this passage, all four words that the Hebrews had for sin are found in this one passage of Isaiah, speaking of the mission of Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus Christ was to pay the price 
for sins. When it says with his wounds we are healed, the the incurable wound that we have according to the book of Isaiah is sin. It is the indwelling sin, our nature, the iniquity, the word that means our, our sin as it permeates us. This is our identity. And for this, he was crucified. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have sinned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 700 years before Jesus came, this is part of the plan. This is it. He is to be offered as sacrifice. Look, verse 7 compares him to a lamb and a sheep that's silent before its shearers. He, he opened not his mouth. He didn't complain. He didn't resist. He didn't defy. He didn't defend himself in the court. This astonished Pilate. He's like, don't you know that I can have you killed? Your life is in my hands and you make no defense? This is profound. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Are you God's people? Are you one of these for whom he died? See, not everyone will believe this. It's been obvious ever since it happened. Not everyone believes. Everyone can see the crucifixion account and be saddened by it and maybe walk away beating their breasts, so to speak. We can see that it's a terrible thing, but it's not an emotional response that the Lord wants out of us here. He doesn't want us to weep for Jesus. He doesn't want us to feel sorry for him. Feeling sorry for him will not save us. We must believe that he is the sacrifice given once for all for sins, and that by believing in him we might be saved. And so my encouragement to you this day is think on these things and take the first action that we're commanded to do in faith, and that is this, repent. That means turn from your sins, never to do them again. And trust that the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price for your sins. Be one of those who responds in the right way, who believes in him, and by his suffering be healed. This is the great truth, the great reality of what we are seeing. And this is the great opportunity we have before us, the opportunity to know Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise your name this day and we thank you for bringing us together to worship you. I pray you'll be glorified as this goes out, as people see it, and I pray that many indeed will believe. May you be known through this. May you be praised through this. And indeed, may you be glorified. Thank you for the indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. And Lord, this day, Work in the hearts of all those who hear. For, Lord, we all have sinned. We all fall short of your glory. And now let us understand that your wrath abides upon us for those sins. That Jesus took upon himself that which we rightly deserved. It would be right to have crucified us. But he took our place. So I pray that you make yourself known this day. 
and that you'll show us the truth of Jesus Christ, that we may know you, that we may approach the holy place of heaven, that we may have connection with you once again, reconciliation, and we may confront you not holding all our sins, but holding the righteousness of Christ who offered himself in our place. I pray you lay this heavy on our hearts this day and give us faith to repent in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I thank you for joining us, and I hope that's been interesting. And if you have any questions about this or would like to follow up uh, with us, you can contact us. You can find out more about us at whitesrun.org, or you can email me personally, whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. That will be answered personally by me so that uh, you don't have to be concerned about being put on some mailing list or anything like that, or will your message be heard? It will be heard. It will be read, and it will be responded to in the way that you deem most appropriate. And so I pray that you might consider these things and that you might indeed respond. And also send us your comments. If you have been encouraged by what you've heard here, uh, please drop us a line. Let us know that you've been encouraged so that we can know and and see what God is doing through these messages. Uh, We thank you and may God bless you.